This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... A real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and thank you for joining us for this episode of New Books in Philosophy, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm Robert Talese, and I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the program with Carrie Figder, Malcolm Keating, and Sarah Tyson. My guest today is Daryl Mullendorf. Daryl is professor of international political theory and professor of philosophy at the Goethe University in Frankfurt. He's also Distinguished Visiting Professor of Philosophy at the University of Johannesburg. Now, Darrell works centrally in political philosophy, focusing centrally on issues of global justice, equality, responsibility, and human development. His new book has just been published with Oxford University Press. Its title is Mobilizing Hope, Climate Change, and Global Poverty. To say the least, the news concerning climate change isn't good. The warming of our planet now threatens to trap millions of people in extreme poverty, while destabilizing the global order in ways that exacerbate existing global inequalities. Mitigation and adaption strategies, even if adhered to, might not be sufficient. The situation, many think, is hopeless. But, as the title suggests, in Mobilizing Hope, Daryl Mullendorf argues that there's not only reason to hope that we might successfully address the climate crisis, but also reason to mobilize hope. That is, to act now in ways that can forge the kind of global solidarity that's necessary to meet the challenge. Now, as usual, there's a lot to talk about, and we will begin as we normally do, that is, with our guest. Hello, Daryl. Hi, Bob. How are you today? I'm doing fine, thanks. Thanks so much for um, inviting me on to the show. I'm, I'm a big fan. <laughs> I appreciate that, and thank you for writing uh, such an engaging book. Um, before we get to it, though, you know, d- d- we usually begin these uh, episodes, as I suppose you realize, um, by me asking the author of the book to say something uh, about him or herself. So can you tell us a bit about yourself? Oh, let's see. Well, I I grew up in Nebraska, and I grew up in—I was a young child during the 60s, and so I suppose— 
something about that time must have influenced me. You know, there was a lot of social unrest. I, I remember the day after Martin Luther King was assassinated. And I think I, I think the, the 60s as a young child impressed me with issues of social justice that must have stuck with me. And by the, by the time I got to high school, I had a couple of teachers that were quite influential, I think, in sort of setting me in a kind of an intellectual direction. I had, I had one teacher who taught me a course on Greek and Roman civilization and encouraged me to read a book by Will Durant called The Story of Philosophy. Um, and that, that, was really, um, that was really good advice. Um, it really, you know, I was really intrigued by the book. And I had another teacher who taught a course on the New Deal called Bosses and Workers. And um, I took an honors class from him in which he let me read Das Kapital. And that, of course, again, you know, I just thought, wow, this is what, it, you know, reading stuff like this, this is, this is, this is what education is all about. And so I went off to college at, at a school that's a great book school, St. John's College, and I read a lot more sort of, you know, history of ideas, uh, Western, Western, Western civilization, math, science, philosophy, all of that. And I, it left me wanting more, but, but I didn't, I didn't really want to be a philosopher. I never conceived of the idea of being a philosopher. I had no idea of, of the professionalism of it all. And I had no idea what graduate school to apply to or any of that. I, I actually thought I was sort of more of a, an 11th thesis kind of guy. I wanted to change the world. And, um, but, um, but I thought I should learn more about philosophy before I do that. And so I went off to graduate school and thought I might get, you know, a, a master's of a public administration or business administration or something like that and work for an NGO or a social justice organization. And, but along the way, take more philosophy classes. And I just liked the philosophy classes more than anything else I was doing. And then when I had the chance to teach philosophy as a graduate student, I thought, hey, you know, I'm enjoying standing up uh, in front of these people and talking about this stuff. So maybe there's something to this. I didn't have a, I didn't have a better plan. <laughs> I didn't have it all worked out. And so I, I just kind of, I kind of stuck with philosophy and I've ended up I, you know, I, I wanted to be a continental philosopher. My ambition in life was to be a continental philosopher. And I I wrote a dissertation on Hegel's philosophy of subjective spirit, which is all this sort of, it's the point in Hegel where the, what we would now call philosophy of mind occurs, all that sort of stuff occurs there. And um, writing the dissertation on, I went to Germany for a year, studied in Heidelberg, writing the dissertation on Hegel just convinced me that I didn't want to be a Hegel scholar. <laughs> and, <laughs> And more or less that I'd really had enough of the continental philosophy that I had studied. It was good for me, but I was ready to move on. I was teaching courses at a community college on um, on applied ethics. And, you know, I was reading these philosophers in the analytic, the Anglo-American tradition, talking very clearly about things like affirmative action and abortion and, you know, important issues and making very clear arguments that you could kind of grasp and track. And I thought, wow, this is you know, for somebody who has concerns about the world in the way I do, this is really much more uh, the kind of thing I want to be doing. And I kind of, you know, at that point, I, 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 I changed directions and began to read a lot more in the Anglo-American tradition in, in moral and political philosophy. There was, a, there was a period of six and a half years in South Africa at the University that Otters ran right after the um, the democratic elections. I was there from 96 to 2002. That was a tremendously exciting time. Um, yeah. And then I came back to the States and eventually moved to Germany where I am today. Wow. Um, 
you know, I, my the first graduate seminar I took was a Hegel seminar. <laughs> you survived. Uh, well, I I had a similar, um, maybe in some way similar uh, reaction. Uh, I, I found um, part of the um, the phenomenology deeply interesting and intriguing and especially the early parts on skepticism and things. But then by the time I got to the end of it, I realized that there was no way to do this halfway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You kind of had to devote your, it was almost like Kant in that way. You had to devote your life to it or, you know, sort of get what you were able to get out of it and then, you know, find something else to, 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 to do. Um, yeah. I think that's right. So life's calling and you just have to decide if that's what's calling you. Yeah. And there was a moment where I, I took seriously the, the thought, like, well, maybe I could do this. <laughs> yeah, maybe, I, maybe I could dive in. And then, um, uh, yeah, I thought, yeah, I don't know German. Anyway, so, yeah. <laughs> well, um, that's all very interesting. Um, so let's talk about the book. Um, and, you know, usually you sort of begin where the book begins. Um, so, you know, the first chapter uh, argues that policymakers, and I should say that um, one of the nice uh, and refreshing things about the book is um, how attuned you are uh, at each stage of the argument to thinking about um, what uh, philosophers or maybe a, the particular philosopher that you are uh, is should be saying to policymakers. Um, so it argues that policymakers should indeed, uh, against some uh, criticisms that you address, should indeed limit or to aim to limit uh, warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Now, you deal with two objections to this qua aim, the two objections to the idea that they should aim for this. Uh, you call them the uncertainty objection and the priority of global poverty eradication objection. Um, can you tell us a little bit about those, just to, to get, kick us off, tell us about those two objections and how you reply to them. Sure, gladly. Um, maybe I should start, though, by just saying something briefly about that 1.5 degree warming limit, because it's it's come under um, a lot of discussion recently um, with, the, with the publication of the last Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report just um, a few weeks ago, and the um, the origin of that um, uh, of that warming limit goal. Uh, well, it, it appears in the in the Paris uh, Agreement of 2015, but it's there as a result of pressure from civil society and also pressure from the small island states, who of course see climate change as an ex existential threat. Um, and in the in the in the Paris Agreement, there's there's two numbers or two targets that are that are given. There's the two the two degree limit, which had been the sort of prior limit of aspiration and then the 1.5 degree limit appears for the first time in that context and i think it's i mean I, I do think it's worth pointing out that it's not insignificant the difference between 1.5 degrees and two degrees the the intergovernmental panel on climate change uh produced a report a few years ago a special report on on 1.5 degrees and the survey in the literature they found that the difference between limiting warming to 1.5 degrees and 2 degrees is the difference between trapping hundreds of millions of people in poverty for a generation or more. So it's a half a degree, but it's a very um, it's a very significant half a degree. So the the question the questions that I or the objections that I look at in the book are um, are one that the um, 
due to uncertainty, due, due to uncertainty with respect to how the climate system itself operates and uncertainty about the relationship between, um, between CO2 and warming, we can't really take any, any target, any temperature target as our policy goal. It's not that the problem isn't with 1.5 degrees. The problem will be the same problem if it were 2 degrees or 2.5 degrees. And the problem is that there's just um, quite a bit of uncertainty with respect to the, the degree with which a given amount of CO2 in the atmosphere will produce warming. Um, and climate scientists refer to this technically as what they call climate sensitivity. And climate sensitivity is the amount of warming that would be produced by a doubling of CO2 in the atmosphere. And in this last um, report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, they found that there's a range of uncertainty with respect to that range, going from 2.5 degrees to 4 degrees. What, what, what that means is if, if you think about CO2 in the atmosphere doubling uh, over pre-industrial levels, so say that it's about 580 parts per million, that would be the doubling. Um, what's uncertain is whether or not that would produce warming of 2.5 degrees or 4 degrees, and the best estimate that it's, it's within that range is three degrees. But of course, that's, I mean, that's a huge range. If you just think about the, the figure that I just, um, I just recited to you that, you know, the difference between 1.5 and two degrees is hundreds of millions of people trapped in poverty. So there really is, I mean, there's, there's no denying the uncertainty, but, but I don't think that that gainsays the 1.5 degree target just for practical purposes. And, the practical value of the 1.5 degree target is that it is something that people can well understand and it's something that is probably the limit of what's feasible with respect to our policy today. And since it's going to be important to limit warming as much as we feasibly can, then the 1.5 degree limit um, represents a sort of um, sort of, sort of res- respecting the, the the feasibility constraints and doing as much as we can with respect to that. And that's that's the that's the answer with respect to uncertainty. The 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 priority of global poverty eradication objection is an objection that, in in spirit, I have sympathy for. That the the, the objection is: look, the most important thing to do um, is, is to ensure that people um, are pulled out of poverty, that their that their regimes have the capacity to engage in poverty eradicating human development. And um, and in order to do that, we should set aside concerns about climate and we should um, rather um, see to it that energy is provided as quickly as possible, energy that will provide for the kind of developments that will pull people out of poverty. And this energy, given, um, given what's available on the market, is going to be dirty. But because, um, because societies will be richer later on, then they can invest then in in, in policies that will allow them to adapt to climate change, right? That's the sort of the essence of the claim. It's not a climate denial claim, and it's a claim that I think it's a, it's a concern that comes at least ostensibly from the right place, right? The concern about global poverty. But the basic problem is, as a position, it's just self-defeating. Um, the, the problem is that uh, climate change mitigation really is a pro-poor policy. Um, the, the concern is that climate is going to trap people. Climate change is going to trap people in poverty, and beyond a certain point of warming, it's just going to be impossible, really, to adapt to climate change. So it's no kind of it's no kind of response to the problem of poverty to, poverty to say um, deal with climate change second and deal with human development first. Good. Um, I, I have to say that um, the 
that response to the um, to the priority kind of objection just struck me as pretty decisive. And and I, I, I you know, again as a as an interloper here, it seemed to me um, uh, kind of intuitive. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's right. I mean, I think it. I mean, it, it seems all the more. In- it seems even more intuitive now, I think, probably than it did 10 or 15 years ago when um, when it first appeared on the scene. And, and, and part of the reason for that is it's just so much more clear now that progress can be made in providing energy um, in ways that are not going to be significantly uh, more costly, maybe even not more costly at all than um, than by means of fossil fuels, because the, um, the, the progress in renewable technology has just um, been so enormous that the renewable energy is is competitive in most markets with uh, with fossil fuel energy so it's not so obvious that there are really any costs associated except for dealing with the sunk costs of the already existing capacity um, that there are any that there are any uh, real significant costs associated with making the transition great so th- that's the the part of the argument in favor of the aim the, the sort of 1.5 aim that deals with um, two pretty um, common, predominant sorts of objections. Now, for the for the positive side, though, of defending the aim, um, uh, you invoke um, sort of two sort of central um, conceptual uh, mechanisms for your argument: uh, the anti-poverty principle, and then the idea of hope makers. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about each of those sort of um, those uh, sort of crucial points in the positive case? Yeah, sure, gladly. And you're right. I mean, I, the the idea of the the, the sort of the 1.5 degree um, uh, limit is a conclusion that is that follows from an argument that invokes something that I call the anti-poverty principle, and. The anti-poverty principle is arises as a out of an interpretation that I offer of Article Two of, of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change that that states that the central objective of of the treaty that is the Framework Convention is to prevent dangerous anthropogenic interference in the climate system. And so that I mean the, the key term there is dangerous, right? I mean there, there's already anthropogenic interference in the climate system, and it's already risky. And the question is, what counts as dangerous anthropogenic interference in the climate system? And um, I think what's important to see when trying to trying to interpret this um, this passage is that there's a difference between risky climate change and dangerous climate change. We oftentimes have reasons to assume risks. We think that there might be good reason to assume risky policies, but it's clear that in this in this passage that to call uh, climate change or interference dangerous is to say that is, is to assume that there's a reason to avoid it. So that, that the idea of danger as it's used in this passage is normative. The, the proper interpretation of the passage has to be normative. So, so the, the question amounts to then what kind of climate change do we have reason to avoid? Um, and of course, this then in the international context forces us to think about what kinds of reasons that you know the international community, people around the world would have. And it becomes a, becomes a sort of particularly difficult problem. You might think of it as a particularly difficult problem of public reason, right? What, what kind of reason could everybody around the world have to, um, to, uh, to, to take, uh, uh, take, climate change above a certain amount to, uh, as, as dangerous or something to be avoided. And I think here progress can can probably be made by thinking uh, about involuntary poverty as something that 
everybody, no matter what their condition is, has reason to to avoid to avoid the imposition of involuntary poverty or to avoid prolonging the involuntary poverty that they're already in. So, so the idea of the anti-poverty uh, uh, principle is to say that climate change that um, that unnecessarily prolongs uh, or, or imposes involuntary poverty is climate change that's that's dangerous. So the principle is it's a normative principle, right? But it's but it's an identificatory principle. The, the aim of the principle is to identify climate change that's dangerous. In order to do that, because danger is a normative concept, it itself has to be a uh, has to be a normative principle. And then connecting to what I said earlier about 1.5 degrees, since it's probably the case that 1.5 degrees is as ambitious as is feasible, then um, then 1.5 degrees gets uh, gets marked out as the as the point at which or beyond which climate change um, would be considered dangerous. Um, that leads then that leads, of course, then to the conclusion to, you know, to take 1.5 degrees as as the goal and, and, and it's consistent with the with the aim of the treaty, the the discussion at the end of the chapter on hope makers um, takes me into um, a part of the book. It's it's a, it's a theme that runs throughout the book, um, and it's it's the it's the way in which I'm I'm in the book profoundly influenced by Martin Luther King Jr. Um, and I I take the term from discussions that King has um, about the about the activists from the North who went down to the South to, um, to help integrate and particularly to integrate, um, coffee, uh, or coffee shops or, or lunch, you know, luncheonettes. And King says that, um, that, that, um, that movement was a movement based upon the philosophy of hope. This, this is the way he puts it. And then at another point in talking about, um, the activists, the civil rights activists, he says that the civil right act, the civil rights activists themselves are, America's hope, and in the in in the philosophical literature on hope, in the moral psychology of hope, it's it's commonly understood that that hope has has sort of has two aspects. It has a normative aspect that it's um, that it has an, an intentional object that's taken to be good, and that hope, as an attitude at least, and that and that it also has an epistemic object. Um, or it has an epistemic aspect that, that it has an intentional object that's taken to be possible. And, and with respect to the latter, that, that the epistemic condition that the object has to be taken to be possible, the strength of hope grows as, as the evidence of its possibility um, seems more compelling. And so a, a hope maker is simply a reason to believe that the intentional object is possible, something that gives credence to um, to the to the possibility of the intentional object, and it, it can be you know it can be a fact about the world, it can be evidence of the possibility of an event, it can be a theoretical explanation of the possibility of an event, it can be an interpretation of events that suggests that the outcome is possible, but but crucially, it can also be for you and I, it can be the actions of others because. So much of what we hope for might depend upon human action, and particularly this is, of course, the case with climate change. When we see others taking action with respect to climate change, it can give us a reason to uh, to hope that uh, that that a solution to climate change is possible. But it works for us as well. Our actions can be hope makers for others, 
And so that's the sort of that's the idea of mobilizing hope that um, that is that's crucial to the book. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Right. So can I ask just a, um, uh, a question maybe about um, how these, these, these two sort of... Uh, sort of central points in the argument um, might be connected. You know, it struck me um, throughout the book that not only when you're talking about the anti-poverty principle, but when you're talking about poverty in general, it's often, the concern is often articulated as the concern, not merely with poverty, although you're concerned with poverty, but it's the, as you were just saying, prolonged poverty, that being trapped in poverty, the, um, uh, the circumstances that make poverty sort of an inevitable, durable, <laughs> lasting condition for you know particular uh, particular individuals, particular parts of the world, um, and I guess that that you know as I was reading, it struck me as like, oh, okay, so the anti-poverty principle in part is an is is a principle that's opposed to poverty as such. But it does also look like it has this sort of like the and as you were just saying the unnecessary, the unchosen, the you know the 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 kind of poverty that that somebody gets stuck in and there's no there's no way out, uh, which also looks like a sort of <laughs> a kind of source of hopelessness. Am I yeah. am I getting this right? Yeah, no, I had a, I had a, I had a sense you were going in that direction, and that's an interesting comment. And I have to I say honestly, um, it it it's, it's a good comment of a reader of the book because it's not something that the author of the book himself thought, um, which is very nice. <laughs> it's very nice. There's, I mean, it suggests that there's more there than um, than I realize. But I like that. I mean, I like that. There is a sense in which that idea, uh, the idea of the of the prolongation of poverty, is um, is uh, it, it threat, threatens a certain kind of hopelessness that um, that is precisely what um, you know clearly uh, we want to avoid. Right, and not, and hopelessness not only in the victims of that unnecessarily prolonged, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, condition that you know could be changed, but also um, from those of us who are the beneficiaries of um, a global order that permits that. It you know there is a kind of you know resignation that it suggests that um, is I think really unhelpful. Yeah. Um, but I mean, good. I mean, the idea of. Uh, the idea of resignation, of course, is um, is important here because I mean, what what's I think what's important about hope is that there is, you know, it, it has this it has this possible positive feedback effect, right? That if something if something is possible and 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 we um, and and we hope for it, then we're we're inclined to work towards it, and that can increase the the, the possibility of uh, of the realization of it, but. The, the nasty thing about resignation is that it, it can be self-fulfilling. Right? That's right. That's right. You know, William James has that discussion, and maybe you're not familiar with this, but about the, you know, the strenuous mood 
like that's the important thing about hope is that it's it 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 it, it, it has the psychological effect of you know producing in us this sort of like go after it get after it sort of set of attitudes yeah. right um i mean arguably uh, arguably i think it's constitutive of hope that one that there's a readiness um to to pursue the object that one hopes for when that seems right to me yeah, yeah that seems right to me um <laughs> Fabulous. Um, so uh, chapter two, um, and this picks up again on some of the uh, uh, some of the things that we've already said, you, you make it, I think, a very nice philosophically subtle, but very important distinction between risk and uncertainty um, as a way of um, proposing an argument for a, a kind of precaution. Um, so, you know, tell us a little bit about that that distinction and how it figures into uh, uh, the, the 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 prescription about uh, about precautionary measures. Yeah, there's so there's a it's a kind of a standard account of risk that that takes it to be comprised of factors of a of the probability of a negative outcome and the magnitude of its disvalue, and so you you estimate risk as a as a product of those two factors and. I mean that works, of course, to the extent that you can you can give a value or a disvalue to the event, but but for our purposes, more importantly, to the, to the extent that you can you can estimate the probability of its occurrence, and and much of climate change just just doesn't work this way. Um, much of climate change um, involves uncertainties um, in the sense that it's impossible to attach a probability for any any particular outcome, and. These uncertainties, I think of in in two different ways. There are uncertainties that have to, that um, that exist in virtue of the outcome being at least in part the product of human action, and these uncertainties I call moral uncertainties. <clears throat> so, for example, um, the the some of the impacts of climate change and and how much we might need to adapt to climate change are uncertain precisely because it's not clear how much we will mitigate climate change. So these are mitig- these, these are uncertainties of, of this moral sort. But then there's another, a whole other class of uncertainties that I refer to as epistemic uncertainties. Um, and these, um, these exist when our understanding of the events um, or the outcome just are insufficient to predict the likelihood. Sometimes they're just unprecedented or they're singular kinds of events. Um, and I've already mentioned this with respect to the warming effects of CO2 in the atmosphere. There's just this range of uncertainty um, about um, about how much um, a given amount of CO2 in the atmosphere will produce warming. And this this just ramifies across um, across the climate system. So it makes predictions of sea level rise. It adds to the uncertainty of predictions of sea level rise, and it adds to the uncertainty with respect to uh, rapid ice sheet melting methane and co2 releasing from the tundra in the in the north massive droughts and so on um there's uncertainties across across these range of effects and that makes thinking about climate change or trying to plan with regard to various options um, regarding climate change something that can't simply be a matter of comparing risk factors Um, in one way or another um, uncertainty has to be calculated into the or be brought into the decision making process. And I mean, some of these things that we're uncertain certain about are, are just frankly scary, right? Rap, rapid ice sheet melting could just outstrip plans to protect or or relocate communities around the world if it if it happens fast enough. Massive methane released from the tundra in the north would magnify warming severely and and incredibly rapidly. Uh, as severe droughts could 
produce widespread hunger and uh, and put people in you know in 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 motion across borders, create all sorts of conflict. Um, so I argue in, in that in that second chapter that our attitude towards outcomes like this has to be one of precaution that we have to take a precautionary approach that precaution is appropriate in light or in circumstances where we can't rely on risk to, um, to do the sort of the analytical work of helping us choose outcomes. But, but sometimes you hear people talk um, in the literature or sort of informally about the precautionary principle as if there's sort of a single sort of understanding of what precaution is and, what the principle is, and that's that's just a mistake. Um, there are different kinds of precautionary principles, and they, they vary in in at least two different ways. They can vary in terms of what they take to be the, the triggering conditions that would require precaution. What kinds of uncertainties, for example, and they and they disagree with respect to whether, in light of precaution, we are allowed to act. Right? We have reason to act in that sense, or whether we're required to act. We, we have reason in that sense. Um, and I argue in, in the book that in light of um, the, the sort of our, our understanding of the, of the basic trigger, triggering con- conditions for possible catastrophe being in place, we don't know exactly what will tip, or what, you know, how much more warming will, will tip, but we know that the conditions are more or less in place, that in, in, in light of the, um, the triggering conditions for catastrophe being in place that we have an obligation to try to um, to limit warming as much as possible in order to prevent that. So the idea of the, the version of the precautionary principle that I defend in the chapter is to just to add to add reasons to the arguments based upon the anti-poverty principle for taking the lowest feasible temperature target seriously. Great. Um, so chapter three is, I think you say this in the introduction, is sort of the the, the most um, uh, philosophical in the sense of academic philosophy <laughs> uh, of them, because you get into um, questions about um, uh, intergenerational justice, what we owe to people who uh, don't yet exist and, um, and or maybe no longer exist. Um, so you defend uh, in that chapter what you call the anti catastrophe principle as the right account of what we, us here now, um, owe to future generations with respect to climate change. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, sort of maybe um, uh, I'm, I'm supposing many of our listeners will be familiar uh, with, with some of the philosophical stuff here, um, but um uh, without going too deeply in, into you know the weeds and the non identity and all that stuff, but you know, could you orient us a little bit to the general philosophical you know puzzle here, uh, and then talk a little bit about uh, your analysis? Yeah, yeah, happily. Um, I mean, I think you're right. It is it is the most theoretical chapter in, in a certain way. I, I think I suspect it's also in some ways probably the most disappointing chapter for for philosophers because I I, I end on a very deflationary note, um, but. Right. It's the best I could do is what is my my defense. Um, so I mean, the idea is that you know a major concern about climate change is that um, that we have 
duties and obligations to future generations, and we're ve- we should be very worried. Indeed, we are. We are very worried about um, what kind of world we're bequeathing to future generations. And and I, I assume that that's a sentiment that is at, at this point fairly uh, fairly widely held. And so I don't think it's the case that the broad general public needs the philosopher to come in and convince them by means of uh, of an argument of international uh, generation or intergenerational justice that. That we need to take this seriously. I I, I assume that for for many reasonably um, uh, reasonably goodwilled people and moderately educated people, they understand that this is a problem. And part of why part of the reason why it's a problem is that um, we may be screwing things up very badly for people who will come after us. Um, and what but what a theory of intergenerational justice tries to do is just just to give an explanation of that uh, of that of that moral sense and and it could possibly be useful also in certain circumstances in which there there seem to be conflicts at stake um so i think that the the right moral principle is going to have to be sensitive to the fact that our our present energy policy even the one that involves consuming fossil fuels has been has been helpful um it's promoted human development and in in that regard it can, could continue to be helpful um in just in that regard um but that it um and that of course the help that it provides in the present redounds to the future right people who are better off today have children who are better off so there is even in the even in it's helping in the present there are there are positive intergenerational uh, ripple effects but of course it's also very harmful. It's harmful both to people living now. We breathe, we breathe polluted air. We have polluted groundwater, um, etc. Et um, and it's clearly harmful for people in the future. So it, it seems like some kind of distributive principle is what is called for um, in this context. So a simple pr- principle to do no harm or to promote um, promote well being doesn't capture the sort of the complexities of the distributive case. Um, I think, and so. In the in the literature in the in the policy literature, it's you know it's it's of course highly um, highly dominated by welfare economics, and the model there is something called discounted utilitarianism. You know the effort is a, the basic utilitarian one to to maximize, and generally in this context, what gets maximized is consumption. We we can set aside that for a moment, but just the the, the problem of of utilitarianism, of course, is is well known that as an aggregating as an aggregating theory, um, it will allow for individuals or small groups of people to have to, to it will impose sacrifices on individuals or a small group of people merely for the benefit of a sufficient of ben, uh, benefits to a sufficiently larger group of people. And in the intergenerational context, since we're since we're aggregating or maximizing maximizing across an infinite time horizon. Um, you know, very massive costs could be justified um, for very small benefits over an infinite, infinite time horizon. That's a the people who people who work with this theory understand this, and so they try to they try to adopt a fix called the the pure time preference. But then they can't figure out there's no rational basis upon which to do. You know, what's your preference? Well, my preference is X. My preference is Y. And there's just you know, it's it just becomes a kind of taste, you know, uh, a kind of a taste test and nothing more. So that that's a basic problem to the approach. Um, I, working with a, working with a, a German economist, Axel Schaffer, we tried to develop an alternative that was also a kind of a distributive approach. We called it intergenerational egalitarianism. And the, and the point of intergenerational egalitarianism was to try to 
equalize the burdens of climate change across generations, where burdens were understood to be a function of, of costs against um, a sort of a level of well-being, that people with a higher level of being could bear more costs but have the same burden as people with a lower level of well-being carrying fewer costs. So it was a kind of intergenerational egalitarianism, which we thought could be a promising alternative to um, to, to uh, the um, the discounted utilitarian picture, and it and you could also sort of nice nicely put it into their equations, which was which was Axel's job, not mine. I had no clue about it, but but so you know you could present it in a way to um, to that audience that um, might be compelling. But it just turns out for for technical reasons that we don't want to we don't have to get too far into it. That the weird thing about uh, about the theory is that if you're um, that what it demands, the kind of equality across generations that it demands is, is actually impossible to achieve if you're successful with respect to climate change, because at some point the costs just stop and the generations, future generations are wealthier. So it's just not, it, it sets, it sets aims that are impossible to achieve. So that can't possibly be the right theory. And it's always I, nice to read a philosophy book where one of the things to be refuted is the author's former position. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is what we're supposed to do, right? You yeah, know, we, that's right. We, we follow the argument where it takes us, not necessarily where we want it to take us. And and where it took me then in this chapter is just something that I call um, the anti-catastrophe principle. Um, and the idea of the anti-catastrophe principle, and this is what's so, you know, so incredibly deflationary, is that um, what we should be seeking to do with respect to um, future generations is um, is mitigating climate change um, to the extent that we can to prevent uh, future catastrophes. And it fits, of course, nicely with the with the arguments that I made about the um, about the um, uh, about the precautionary principle. And it also has the virtue of sort of aligning itself with the the central objective of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change to avoid danger dangerous climate change and. I sort of close to the end of the chapter, you know, in in recognizing the deflationary character of the conclusion that I came up with, um, I I quote Adorno, who who once said that philosophy is the most serious of things, but then again, it's not all that serious. And I, I mean, and the thought is, you know, in fact, it's not as if the world is waiting for philosophers to solve this problem. I think the world understands that 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 we have an obligation to future generations, but it would be nice philosophically if we could provide an explanation of that, and it might even be useful in cases when, um, when there's, you know, when there's conflicts with respect to what we have to do. Can, can I ask just, for just I, I hope this doesn't push beyond the, the, the deflationary aspect of the principle, but can you say something, um, uh, uh, say a little bit more about, you know, w- w- what we're thinking about um, when we're thinking about catastrophe, we're thinking about um, a very, very bad thing that's going to affect very large numbers of people or an extremely bad thing that might affect only uh, smaller numbers of people uh, or a mildly bad thing that that impacts the entire population of the world. Um, can you say something just a little bit about how you think about catastrophe? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think about these, I mean, in, in the literature on climate change, there's oftentimes this discussion of uh, abrupt and irreversible events. Um, and that's that's certainly a part of what's behind the idea of catastrophe, that there are this possibility of, the, of these events that are irreversible in the sense that there's no going back from them. They're going to fundamentally change the the nature of the future. Um, this could happen if, you know, with polar, polar, if polar ice caps completely melt, there's no going back to the, um, and at least in the given the foreseeable 
technological rise and there's no they're going back to a state in which we have polarized caps again um but but what's i think most important with respect to catastrophe are the kinds of climatic changes that are that are that, that we can't adapt to that exceed our adaptive capacity you know if we can adapt to it then it's one thing then then um and if we and you know and if we of course have the um the moral muster to adapt for it in a, in a, in a just way, then, then, it, then it's one thing. But I think of catastrophes primarily as those, those changes that um, exceed human adaptive capacity. Fantastic. Um, so chapter four um, uh, takes up some questions about um, mitigation policies and um, particularly responsibility for uh, enacting uh, policies of that kind. Um, and there you introduce um, a theme that's, you know, that comes up earlier in the book, um, but really uh, comes to the forefront, the importance of solidarity. Um, and there, you know, part of the argument there is that solidarity provides a particular kind of reason uh, uh, for, for action, uh, which you call non-teleological. Um, now, and, and Chapter five then, you know, really um, brings solidarity uh, to the foreground of, of, of the, the hope making stuff. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about the responsibility for mitigation and then lead us into uh, the, the talk about the importance of solidarity? Yeah. So I, 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 I developed the notion of responsibility um, in concert with, an, with what I take to be the relevant principle of international justice in this context. So. The principle of international justice comes from, again, from the United Nations Framework Treaty on Climate Change. That there's a norm uh, called the right to promote sustainable development that's stated in um, in the document, and I I give a an, an interpretation and a defense of the norm as as a liberty claim that medium and low income countries have to pursue poverty eradicating. Uh, energy intensive human development in a in a cooperative context of climate change mitigation so i mean the the history history suggests that um that human human development gains are very energy intensive and so states who are involved in the cooperative effort of 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 mitigating climate change are also low and medium income states who are involved in in this cooperative effort are also intensely interested in being able to continue the process of, of poverty eradication to the extent that they've been engaged in it at all, I, I suppose I should say, um, that, um, that uh, they, want to, they want to protect their ability to do that. Um, and uh, I, I argue that um, protecting their, their, their claim to be able, their, their claim to have the liberty to be able to protect um, uh, those kinds of activities is, is fully justified if we we take seriously the moral, morally mandatory project of poverty eradication, um, but we can also think of it, the norm as justified as a, just as a matter of fairness in engaging in a cooperative project. If we, if the reason why states would want to engage in the cooperative project of climate change mitigation is the, is due to the threat of poverty traps, then the burden that's laid on them in the pursuit of the of the cooperative project shouldn't be one that undermines their aim of, of, of avoiding poverty traps. It shouldn't impose policies on them or requirements on them that would, that would impoverish their population. 
Um, and then a sort of more prosaic, but I think nonetheless important uh, justification for the norm is simply that it's stated in the document. It's a promissory obligation that states who engage in, you know, that, that ascend to the treaty um, uh, take on. And so the upshot is that that, that highly human developed states um, don't have, it shouldn't be part of their business to make international proposals that would undermine the, the capacity for it for for low and medium income countries to pursue um, human development. On the contrary, um, they have to respect um, these aims of those countries. And that has, I think, then profound impl implications for a concept of, or for our understanding of responsibility. And and here again, as in other points in the book, I, I draw on, on something that I learned from Martin Luther King Jr. In, in his famous I Have a Dream speech, he talks about um, America having having a, having a promissory note to African Americans, right. and um, what I think is nice about that way of putting it is that it allows us to see that a theory of justice is is an account of 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 the moral creditors. It's a it's a theory that includes an account of of who is owed what, um, and and then by uh, sort of by symmetry, an account of responsibility is an account of the moral debtor, debtors. It's an account of, of who has to pay in order that those who are owed get what they're owed. And so I think that we should then try to develop an account of responsibility that, that serves the account of justice. And um, the account of responsibility that I think that does the best job of that in this case is an ability to pay account of responsibility that, that holds states responsible for um, for affecting the global energy transition on the basis of their capacity to do so but where capacity means that they that they um, that they can do this without making major um, sacrifices to their to human development aims and of course this is clearly then the most highly human developed states um, who have the greater capacity um, and they should take take the lead um, in in promoting the energy transition and assist um, um, low and medium income, income states in that transition to the extent that that's necessary for, for them to be assisted without so that they don't um, they don't damage their human development prospects. And so these are these are reasons of, of justice, right? The reasons of, of responsibility and justice that 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 highly human developed states have to um, to mitigate uh, climate change and reasons of justice are, are based upon the, the claims of, of, of others and reasons of prudence of Based upon the claims of oneself, and I, and I take there to be a third class of reasons. There may be four or five, for all I know. But there's a third class of reasons, reasons of solidarity, that are based on the claims that we share with others. They're neither purely reasons of justice, the claims of others. They're neither purely claims of self, of prudence, but they're they're based upon the reasons that we have in common with with others, or the reasons that we we share with others, and. And and there especially also reasons that re, that require as as a matter of sort of a success condition they require us to work with others in pursuit of the interests that we share with others and these are particularly important when when the out, when outcome requires collective action um, and um, and uh, and moral appeals might not necessarily be sufficient um, and I think of reasons of solidarity as non-teleological reasons, because I think in the standard case, at least, they they require agents to set aside their immediate interests in order to act for another interest that's shared with others. Um, and um, 
this um, can oftentimes be uh, especially important to do, but it can also be costly to do. So, in, you know, in the in the classic strike situation of the 19th century, um, from which the you know solidarity gains its appeal, uh, c- claims of solidarity um, were were quite costly. I mean, there was a lot of there, there was a lot at stake involved um, in in acting on solidarity, you know, and there was a, there was a lot of danger with respect to doing so. But it helped, I think, and it, it, it helps as a motivating feature that one can also argue uh, on the basis of, sol- of solidarity that the person acting uh, on, on the basis of solidarity will will receive uh, will will receive an outcome that um, that's indeed one that they intend and that's that's of course a part of the difference between reasons of solidarity or or, or an outcome that, um, uh, that that from which they will benefit that that's part of the difference between a reason of solidarity and a reason of justice and I mean I think it's clear in the in the climate change mitigation case that um, that we have reasons of solidarity to mitigate climate change and indeed to help um, medium and low income countries to achieve their mitigation in, uh, aims. Climate change mitigation requires a net zero global economy, a close to gross zero global emissions will be required and it, ha- it has to happen everywhere or it doesn't happen anywhere at all. Um, and so, I mean, this is really sort of one of those cases in which an injury to one is an injury of injury to all that's, that's I think, clear to see. Um, it's less obvious in the case of climate change um, adaptation. And this is because climate change adaptation typically involves taking measures that protect local communities or protect regions. Um, and the success conditions then don't necessarily depend upon what's being done somewhere else in the world, um, or at least they don't obviously or directly depend upon what's being done in other parts of the world. So one might argue that, you know, that, that highly high, high income countries have reasons of justice to help, um, to help adaptation in other parts of the world, but, uh, but deny somebody might, might deny on the basis of this, that there are reasons of solidarity to help, um, with with adaptation projects in other parts of the world, I I think though on the contrary that the argument can be made, and the argument can be made by appealing to what the consequences of adaptation failure are in other countries, and and the way in which adaptation failures um, produce um, will will invariably produce pressures in countries that may be more successful to adapting to um, uh, to climate change. Uh, in, in, in forms that will be disruptive to their societies and disruptive to their politics. So there's a kind of, I think there's a kind of in, indirect argument that can be made on behalf of the claim that there are, that there are reasons of solidarity as well, as well as reasons of justice to support adaptation efforts in, um, in low and medium income, income countries. Great. Um, so Daryl, you've been very generous with your time and I want to make sure that um uh, we we get to to talk a little bit uh, about the ending of the book, um, which you know the book uh, uh, mobilizing hope ends with a call for hope um, with respect to you know two particular sites, uh, uh, hope for the Paris Agreement, um, and um, secondly, um, hope for averting what you call uh, the misanthropocene. <laughs> Um, you know, can you tell us a little bit about those 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 two sites for hope? Sure. Um, so, in in the context of climate change, one of the one of the, the major hurdles that we confront is just the tremendous influence of the fossil fuel industry, um, both in domestic politics, but also in international negotiations. The, the influence that the 
fossil fuel industry has in in slowing the process of climate change mitigation. They have they have assets um, in the form of fossil fuels that that they won't be able to exploit if the temperature targets are to be met. These are assets um, on the order of one to four trillion dollars, and so their their interest, their their business interest, is to um, is to is to extend this process uh, and to continue to be able to um, to reap the profits of the a- assets as long as possible. And this allows them to spend lots of money on um, on influencing politicians whose critical judgment is up for sale. Um, and they also exercise influence even at the um, at the international negotiation. So that me the, the next United Nations meeting of uh, of the parties, uh, the conference of the parties will be held in Dubai, and and the head um, of that meeting will be the head of the Dubai National Oil Company. At, at the last meeting, there were more representatives of fossil fuel companies than of the the ten states who are most affected by climate change. So the the influence is just pervasive, um, and countering this influence is, I think. Uh, the, the sort of the first the first political task really in trying to develop a response to, to climate change mitigation and um, and here you know I think the message of hope is particularly important right the message of hope is one that the future will be better and that the future is um, it's possible that making the transition um, to uh, to renewable energy will um, will obviously produce a more stable climate it will result in cleaner air cleaner drinking water, more secure respect for indigenous control over lands, less international conflict, but also importantly, um, greater employment. There's very important studies that suggest that um, renewable energy is more job intensive than fossil fuel industries are. And so I think a, a message, it's possible to construct a message of, of, the, of the broad gains for uh, a uh, for a climate movement, and this is really this really needs to be stressed because what has to happen in order to counter the influence of the fossil fuel industry is a kind of mass mobilization. The sort of the the idea is that um, the best way to counter the um, the power of money is through the power of people in the streets. This brings me back to the message of Martin Luther King, who um, of course is well known as uh, as a theorist of nonviolence and as a, as a theorist of civil disobedience. It's not as well appreciated as a theorist of, of mass movement building, but he was indeed that. And he was a practitioner, right? He led very successful mass movements. And and part of the picture for King on uh, and how to affect change against entrenched, entrenched in, in, interests is this sort of persistence, right? That um, the, uh, the, it's not, uh, it's, it's, it won't be enough for, for there to be one demonstration this month and then maybe another three months, but uh, three months from now, but there has to be this persistence of mass movement building in which one, one, one event moves towards, um, towards increasing the mobilization for the next and so on. Um, and so taking this sort of, uh, strategic attitude towards the building of mass movements, I think, is 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 essential, and I think this is where the message of hope is important because um, it has the capacity um, to to give people reasons to think that um, that change is possible. And the more we see people engaged in this kind of thing, the um, uh, the, the, the greater the capacity is that it can be there can be a kind of contagion effect. Um, so that's the that's the short story with respect to climate change but climate change is just one of the ways in which humans are 
fundamentally altering planetary processes. Biodiversity loss is hugely important as well. And these, these are putting pressure on planetary systems that are characteristic of what we now think of as the Anthropocene era. And if we, if we fail to respond to the Anthropocene era effectively, it will mean massive human suffering and it will mean profound ecological destruction. These are all, of course, all things that we have reasons to avoid, reasons of justice, reasons of self-interest, reasons of solidarity. Um, but I think that there's, there's something else that's important about, about this kind of a failure. Um, it, it would, first of all, it would be a failure of, it would be a massive failure of collective rationality for human, for humanity, because it would mean that, um, that we saw a better future. We understood that the future was better and we failed to take the necessary means to achieve that better future. In this case, we failed to sort of rope in the destructive elements, um, the private interests that were against pursuit of the better future. But secondly, it would be it would be an, an enormous failure of humanity to cooperate on reasonable terms to secure our interests that we've driven by international competition and sectoral interests. We couldn't come to terms and cooperate um, to achieve this this better world. So, so the Anthropocene, I think. Um, implicates how we respond to the Anthropocene, I think implicates sort of fundamental human capacities, right? Human capacities for, for, for rational action and for, and for reasonable action, for collective rational action and for, for, for cooperation on the basis of reasonable terms. So it's not, is, I mean, it, I mean, of course it's enough in one sense that, that the Anthropocene could produce massive suffering and ecological destruction. But, but I think it's also an, important to see that um, that there's a certain kind of there'd be a, there could be a, a certain kind of verdict on humanity that would be drawn on the basis of the failure that the failure would suggest a kind of misanthropic conclusion that it might have been better as as both Kant and Rawls in, diff, in different in different in, with respect to different kinds of discussions suggest as possible that if there's certain ways in which human beings could fail, um, with respect to very important ends, in Kant, in Kant the case is the abolition of war, and for Rawls the case is the failure to to uh, to bring self interest under control and to construct uh, just regimes. There are certain ways in which in which humanity could fail that could call into question um, humanity itself, and this is and this is why I think part of what's at stake is um, is whether or not we're able to to avoid the possibility of what I then call the misanthropocene, and. Again, this is where the idea of mobilizing hope, I think, is is remarkably important because it's through our efforts of talking to one another, of engaging with one another politically, that we can give each of us reasons to um, to uh, to believe in the possibility that a better future is possible. Well, on that note, uh, Daryl, let's uh, let's wrap up the discussion. I mean, thank you so much uh, for joining me. Uh, to talk about your new book on new books and philosophy. It's been really a wonderful conversation. Bob, this has just been a tremendous opportunity for me. I, I can't thank you enough for uh, for you giving me the opportunity. Well, uh, I really enjoyed the book. And, you know, to those who are listening to us, you know, it's, it's, it's a really um, fascinating, engaging, uh, accessibly written book. Um, so, uh, and I recommend it highly. So uh, 
listeners, uh, thanks once more for joining New Books in Philosophy for the discussion. I've been I've been talking to uh, Daryl Mullendorf. Um, he's just written a he's written a fascinating book called Mobilizing Hope: Climate Change and Global Poverty. Um, it's newly published by Oxford University Press. So once again, thank you for listening to New Books in Philosophy, and bye for now. <laughs>